Obsessed the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 155 was recorded live March 22nd, 2013. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson. And normally I would say something witty, but I, I really don't feel like it. The weather's been so good, I just want to enjoy this weather. We've had a couple of nice days here. And before we get into it, I'd like to welcome my co-host this week. We have Max the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Max? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So have you been out scouting any spots? Uh, I've been doing a little bit of flying and uh, looking for some debris fields. I am really hot, drop. I'm so working on get boat, so I get out there and do some scanning. Ooh. I want to get that bomber done this year. Oh, yeah, we, we definitely need to. Uh, Jim Kleeman and I were just talking last week that we're going to have to uh, get started on our boat project. So I'm going to try and pen a date in the next two or three weeks, and we're going to start that. I, it's a lot easier to work on it in the spring when you can see water coming and get it out in the lake than it is in the winter when you know you're a little bit away from being able to use it in the dive. Well, it helps when it's still light at 730 at night. Oh, oh that's true, too. Yeah, it's just starting to get dark now. So I, I like this time of year. I don't know why we do this daylight savings time anymore. I, I'm ready for that to go away. Yeah. I'd like well, to thank you. Go ahead. i to get you a suit to wear first. A suit? What, you mean like a tuxedo or... Well, something you need, this is the first, I think, your month that you had got in and got wet. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm on a long string. And I'm going to blame that for why my, my wetsuit is deteriorating. It's got to be that it hasn't gotten wet enough. I don't think wet enough. I think it's ripped enough. Ripped enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think it's salvageable, but uh, there are others who will... Who will disagree with me, such as some of those in the chat room. I'd like to thank everybody who's coming in the chat room tonight. We have uh, Rich from Diver Sync, a celebrity decided to join us. We have uh, Dave Toneman as well in the chat room, and we also have uh, Guest 2, who's from Massachusetts. Welcome, and I'm sure we'll have a few more trickle in. We might have Jim Schultz showing up. Uh, he, he came. Thanks for everybody. It's uh, we got Good Friday tomorrow, so I think that may be affecting some of our attendance, but... Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right on into the news, give people in the chat room a peek so they can follow along. First one up is the damage three guys in a wetsuit can do. This one is out of Egypt. Uh, in the Middle East, they were having Internet slowdowns, and uh, they were just uh, blaming it on the hackers, but this time it was hackers in a more traditional sense. The Egyptian Navy caught three men hacking into the undersea cable. Uh, they chased their boat and arrested them. The cable that was damaged was the SMW-4, which uh, travels from Marcelles in the south of France to Singapore. The telegeometry submarine cable map shows uh, the, the track, so if you click on the show notes, you'll be able to see the, see where it goes. And it, is it like one cable? Is this like telegraph? Well, the picture is quite interesting. Uh, it's rather thick, and it's like those transatlantic, you know, phone cables. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of, uh, a lot of volume. 
from what I understand of the internet, it do, it's not supposed to work like this. You're not supposed to just have one connection that goes through. So uh, some parts of the world look like they could do a little bit of an infrastructure improvement. Well, when jump, trying to jump across large bodies of water, that might have something to do with it. But yeah. I don't think their, their lines and communication lines are as good down there in the Congo and Africa. Yeah, there's some parts of the world yeah. where you, you, you can give them a pass, but with the amount of money that's available over there, there's no reason why they have a, a, a non-redundant infrastructure. And unless your government doesn't want you to have wow. access to the Internet, <laughs> all the freedom goes with it. Well, you know, that very well could be. Uh, they said they're used to the cables being damaged by fishermen and boat anchors, and they said they even had a uh, history of the lines being in, intentionally cut before. In 2007, uh, Vietnamese pirates stole parts of the cable near that country. In February 2008, outages of five separate undersea cables were attributed to sabotage, according to the UN official. They said that undersea cables are tempting target for terrorists. Yeah, they said uh, one of the key benefits of a new line is that it runs between London and New York would reduce transmission speeds from 64.8 milliseconds to 59.6. Huh. Well, they didn't identify how they'd catch them. I, I still were curious or not whether or not these are sonar types up we were talking about last week in our last week or the week before. Well, one thing that they can do, and I know this from some of the testers that we have at work, is you can hook something on, and if it's fiber or if it's uh, electric, and these devices will tell you exactly how far down the cable the break is. Yeah, we do at work to call out time main reflectometers, and mm-hmm. it really makes a difference if you're looking into at least power cables and communication cables to yeah. tell where it's at. So I don't have to, like you said, I got a quarter mile running through some rebar, blah, 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 at a factory. It's nice to know where that break is. There's nothing now to cut it at one place, pull a new cable through, and then splice on both ends. Yeah, so what I'm anticipating is that with the amount of time they were having problems, they were able to figure out that it was so far out to sea, and they may have just said, hey, somebody take a drive by there and see what's up. Well, they were just going through, they talked about the thousands of miles of accessible, unprotected cable, but if somebody really wanted to do it, you could do multi-entries instead of cutting it, take a little bit of C4, you could permanently put that out. Well, you know, here's you know, the cable that's underwater, but there's a lot of above water locations that are just as easy to mess with. You know, around us, you, we have brick buildings, which they make a big deal about being strong, but there's also poles where they do a lot of splicing, and those get hit with a plow, and they're just as disastrous. And it doesn't take any sort of sophisticated coordination. You go into one of those boxes and with wire cutters, and you made a mess. And, and actually, you cost them a lot of time, too. Yeah. Uh, next one is there's a push going on for commercial diving regulations, and I'm, I'm glad you're on tonight, Matt, because I already thought that there was. I do not understand that comment at all. Uh, 29 CFR 1910 is the standard for commercial diving operations, and I'm talking about back when back in the day. <laughs> I mean, more, was, more than a couple of years ago? <laughs> yeah. And uh, we had it there. Now, it has toughened up as the years went by. And then you've still got, in Michigan, you've got Biosha, which jumps on top of that. And they are regulated up the kazoo. And I was reading a little bit about what happened. I, I really did get a good flavor for it, you know, the, the issue. But there's plenty of rule regulations. They've made the requirements for um, 
for the divers themselves, their training, their supervisors, it's up there. That doesn't mean diet can't up. And it doesn't mean, obviously, you've got some bad apples out there, but the regulations are there. Yeah, th- this one, uh, just so everybody gets up to speed what we're talking about, the, an event occurred in March 4, 1996. Brian uh, Pillington got a call to inspect an oil rig off the coast of Texas. Uh, the University Prep and Divers Institute of Technology grad had moved away from Bellevue to Houston Center of the Commercial Diving Industry in America. It was one of those days where everything went wrong, uh, Peter Pillington recalled. Five divers were scheduled to be on the job that day. Only Brian and other guys showed up to meet a diving supervisor they had never worked with before. While he's normally the tender that day, Brian Brian's job was diving. He was supposed to be the guy who supplies the air and runs the compressor. He was 23 at the time, assumed that this was his opportunity for him to get in the water. And this is uh, what Pillington said. Brian was a trained diver, but the normal sequence is you work as a tender for three, four, five, even 10 years before you do any serious diving. Uh, Pillington was under 28 feet of water, placing test equipment oil rigs so that measurements could be sent back to the surface. The crew at the surface noticed pressure gauges in the air, air compressor. Pillington dropped uh, from 150 pounds per square inch down to as little as 80 or 90 per square inch. During the dive, Brian called the surface, said he was having difficulty breathing. They asked him to check his fittings. He was incoherent for a while, says Pillington. Uh, the Coast Guard had already left the site. There's no backup equipment, no backup airline, no extra scrubbing tanks, and no one available to help Brian underwater. The key item right there is, what do you mean the Coast Guard had already left the site? Why were there, they there to begin with? Well, Number two, if he's on air from the surface with a tender and says he said, I can't have air, it's, uh, it's, the next word is pull my ass up. He's mm-hmm. on a line. Pull it up. And then 23 feet of, 28 feet of water, you've got nine pounds pressure. I don't know what kind of hat he was wearing. That would be nice to know. Mm-hmm. But nine pounds at that depth is enough that you can breathe. But again, as soon as he said he had issues, that, he should have been coming up. Well, and that's incoherent for a while. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, and and that's you're, what his your 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 diver is not speaking correctly. You don't try to walk them home. You pull them up. Well, and that's what his father was saying. He didn't believe it. They blamed his death. They they wrote it up to diver error, and his father had been fighting it. And uh, let's see. Well, they told me the reason they knew he had screwed up is because he called her the surface and told him over the intercom he had screwed up. Now, if somebody called up and on the, on the intercom told me I had a problem and I screwed up, you'd be hauling up for sure. Yeah. Now, um, they've got a couple articles kind of interwoven here, uh, but there's a, a few interesting points. They say commercial divers are diving at a rate of 40 times greater than other workers, but because divers are listed as non-hazardous working group, there are no formal regulations. See, I don't understand what they're talking about there. Well, the part that just blows my mind is that little section over here. Uh, let me find it now. Just like a oh, in all fairness, most commercial divers are well trained, but there's a lot who aren't. Brian's diving supervisor, his only training was a five-day course at the YMCA. Now, excuse me, but you ain't gonna do a commercial course at the YMCA. So uh, the whole that whole scenario is screwy. I'd love to know the company because if I knew the company, then I could tell you something. Does that sound logical to you? It doesn't at all. There's just a lot of things that don't ring right, and I can't tell if it's the way the article was written that they didn't get all the facts. Well, like I said, a poor, uh, poor maintenance of the generator that was later destroyed caused the accident. What kind of generator has got to do with an air compressor? Well, 
generator is electrical. Yeah, I, I think what they meant to say was compressor. They said a shop rag used as a filter got sucked in the compressor and burned. That set smoke and carbon monoxide into Brian's helmet. He passed out. So that doesn't that tell you that they were lying? I mean, if that's the case, about having even the conversation with him? Well, he passed out falling face first into water. Well, he was already in the freaking water. Yeah. And again, if you're having trouble, how come you don't pull me up? There's so much missing, it's hard to say. Yeah. I was trying to look and see if I could figure out where this occurred and on what rig, and it doesn't tell me any of that. No, not a lot of information, but... Well, and when they say divers enlisted as non-hazardous work group, that is totally out to lunch. It's a very hazardous work group. So I, I don't know who wrote this, but I'd love to know where they got their information. Well, I think they took it from one expert and they didn't cross-check. Well, another thing is, isn't there supposed to be, well, that's what the, the DNR got fined for up in Washington. Yeah. Is that you have to have uh, safety divers. Yes. So it wouldn't matter. I mean, I'm not going to say it wouldn't matter that uh, a diver screws up, but you also have to have the contingency there. I'm sorry, you got to have what? Contingency, backup. You have to have uh, a safety diver, and then you had to have a... Right now, you always have a three-man team. You have a backup diver, and you have a tender. And you still can have a dive supervisor on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's standard. The Navy instituted that bazillion years ago. The industry pretty much stayed on to it, and that's why the mom-and-pop shops, dive shops, get by because they don't necessarily do the same safety backup that the other ones do because it costs more money. Right. But this almost sounds like they're talking a scuba type atmosphere as opposed to a commercial. You might, you know, it's like a hookah. Do you have a hookah? Are you considering yourself commercial? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would either. Yeah. Well, next one up is uh, I. Uh, I'm gonna. I gotta be careful. I say this. It could change our rating. Uh, is that pocket expert warn, warns reef killed for cash? An underwater seawalking company has been accused of paying Puckett's sea gypsies to destroy coral reefs near a holiday maker atoll of Puckett. <laughs> I keep wanting to add the, a phonetic F sound in the beginning of it. The alarming We're talking, we're talking uh, Thailand, so I don't have a Thailand accent. Yeah. An alarming accusation comes from an expert marine biologist, Dr. Thoringham, uh, at the, from the Marine Biologist Center there. She said she was shocked by what she's seen diving um, and at the fresh food market where coral reef fish, crabs, and other creatures were openly on sale. She's calling on the administrators, the media, dive companies, and tourists to save the reefs and reef creatures before it's too late. She says she was called to action when she saw the condition of the reef off Kanuinawi Island close to Puckett just a couple of days ago. Destruction is alarming, she said, from far from deteriorating caused by the wrong kind of diving. A company that offers sea walking adventures has paid sea gypsies to remove a large area coral reef. She said 300 square feet, square meters of reef had been destroyed. She's talked to police at length about it, but fears officers may not be able to take appropriate measure, hence her call to people to react. Now, walking, is, is that kind of like a snuba type of thing where they just have them you walking on the, the bottom? Where you got the bubble helmet and you can put it on like it's like with handbags over your shoulders. So as long as you don't bend over, you're fine. Yeah. With blue rig giving you air, then you can walk. They, they have a here that says hordes mostly Chinese and Korean uh, tourists see lifestyle underwater adventures with a time or the meat to learn to swim dive or even to swim. But it does sound like a shallow water operation used in Nuka, in which you just lay them down to walk around so they don't have to worry about anything. And that's what they're doing is screwing up the coral. Yeah. And she also went on later in the article to talk about 
plastic and trash and everything, and that nobody's doing anything. So. Right, the Facebook aspect. It had an item from so-and-so on Facebook. Most of Thailand's natural beauty assets are being sacrificed for cash. They let what's-his-name and Thaya like throw garbage, cigarettes, bottles, plastic bags all over the beach just because they're spending money. Yeah. Well, that, and that's a short-term way to look at it. If they don't change their methods, they could be in a world of hurt. Well, remember the last couple of weeks you've been talking of, of a lot of the, uh, I, you know, Asians in that area, they were talking about what, the um, having to train the divers, uh, the make sure the divers who were training other people were certified because it sounded like it was really helter-skelter. They were taking advantage of people. Remember you've been talking about mm-hmm. that? This sort of falls in line with that. Yes. Let's see. I, it looks like Jim just came on, so I'll add him into here. Let's see. Hold on just a second. I think your uh, license for lobsters, I kept getting a stand your ground thing. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 hold, yeah, hold on a second. I'm, I think I'm going to have to reconnect. I think I lost my audio recording. Oh, okay. Yeah, hold on. You are unmuted. I am unmuted. You are unmuted. Okay, now it's back, but for some reason we had a little bit of uh, audio problems, so it looks like I'm going to be downloading and editing again. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of lowers the quality. It sounds like we're talking in a tin can, so we apologize for that. But, uh, yeah, that's lovely way things go. And, Jim, how you doing? I'm doing just great, thank you. Excellent. Okay, well, let's get back to where we were. I just need to get TalkShoe to come up and run. Okay, next up is we have something out of... Uh, off the East Coast, and this one's off New New Hampshire, and and I won't distract everybody by the lead article, <laughs> which is what's in the in there. We could do a whole show just on that, but the yes, one that we could. what's that? I said yes, we could. <laughs> yes, we should. But but the but the one that we that was scuba related is down towards the end, and they talk about lobster in New Hampshire. Yeah. The House may pass a bill this week to allow scuba divers to buy a thirty-five dollar license in order to take up to five lobsters a day during the month of September. That would be available to residents. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Five I lobsters would be a day. Getting lobster what what state is that? New Hampshire. Ah. Yeah. Five a day. Boy, I would be fat and happy at the end of uh, September. That's a spiny lobster out there for them, isn't it? Uh, no. That's the main lobsters. I'd take mm. that, man. I'd be out there every freaking day. Oh, yeah. Can but you freeze dry those suckers? Why would you want to? I'd, I'd, I'd buy a fish tank. Yeah, well, that's going to cost you a lot to maintain. Well, See, five it. lobsters a day, 30 days, that's a hundred and something lobsters. That's a big tank. Yeah, I'm ready for a big tank. <laughs> they said it would be available to residents, so I'm taking it that me being a non-resident, I wouldn't be able to do it. Which seems kind of crazy because you'd want to encourage tourism. I mean, look at Florida. How much... How much money do you think that brings in when they have their mini lobster season? Yeah, well, they're not looking at five a day for every day for a month. Well, not a whole month. It's a, the mini season's a short time, and then you've got your regular season. But you can always move up there for a day, you know. And then I've got I've got family in New Hampshire. If it, if it doesn't set, you know, you can go say heck with this. I'm gonna go home. Yeah, yeah. Can we be like a dual citizen, <laughs> dual citizenship? <laughs> well, if you had that Bristol guy with his largest own fish tank, you could put the lobsters in there. Yeah. Yeah, what Mac's referring to is our next article. And uh, yeah, that that is a good size private tank when the only way you're going to be able to clean it out 
is to use scuba gear. I pasted the wrong one into the chat room. Here we go. There's the correct one. Now, Bristol, this is reported on a Milwaukee station, so I'm picturing that they're talking about somebody in Milwaukee. Are you trying to kick up or get that article? Yeah, it says, uh, let's see if they got his name, Bill Wan's basement uh, is filled with machines, including an intricate and expensive toaster, uh, oven used in sophisticated pharmaceutical crime labs. Wan, who is a high school dropout, repairs and refurbishes machines like these for a living. He says most of the people who operate the devices he fixes are PhDs. In his uh, living room, there he has a giant fish tank. It measures 24 feet long, 10 feet high, 10 feet from front to back. Viewing glass is 2.5 inch thick acrylic, more than 20,000 gallons. And it is considered to be the largest privately owned reef tank in North America. He says, I'm just used to it. I mean, it doesn't feel that big to me anymore. I look at it as a maintenance nightmare of all the things that can go wrong. He and a friend sometimes have to get on scuba gear in order to maintain the tank. On the other side of the glass, looking in, you don't realize how deep it is until you're actually inside the tank. It supports 100 to 150 fish, some valued at over $1,000 each. He's he using... didn't understand that part. It takes a space several times bigger than the fish tank itself? I, th I think what they're talking about is uh, the filtration system. Okay. Yeah, some, some people do a fancy filtration system, which, as it gets farther on the article, he's talking about that he's actually developed and starting. So if you see on TV where they have these extreme aquarium craze going on, yeah. uh, he, he may be into something. He's planning a tank. His next one is going to be somewhere between 60,000 and 80,000 gallons. And if he's in the Midwest, I mean, it's not like you're near the ocean and you can go and you know get a tanker truck and fill up some ocean water and bring it to your tank. You He's got to do all the chemicals himself. I can't imagine how much that costs just to maintain. Yeah, I used to have a. Thing. I did fresh water, and I've all. I I would dabble about once every few years into a saltwater tank, and uh, it's it was definitely a little pricey. You had your sea salts and stuff. You had to keep everything all quite balanced, uh, and then the fish themselves are got to be a real pain in the butt too. Can you imagine if he has a leak of 20,000 gallons? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you notice he said that it was upstairs. What kind of flooring do you have that can support that much weight? I mean, that has to... It's Like I said, he must have some coin to begin with. Yeah. But see, now that would work for the lobster. See? Well, yeah. If I might just toss that thing out, put the lobster in. Then you could actually sell some, recoup some of your money, maybe. Yeah. But I bet you start taking money for it. All of a sudden, you got a whole different person visiting your door. Okay. Donation. Yeah. A donation, yeah. You come over for the the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of a little atmosphere, they had uh, another lost camera reunited with its owner. This one had only been adrift for six years. In 2007, uh, Lindy Cillian went to Hawaii for vacation, took her camera along, put the camera in its underwater housing. She went diving, but unfortunately lost her camera. She thought it was gone forever. The camera was incredibly found in Taiwan, thousands of miles away, six years later. The pictures from 2007 vacation were still on the camera. The camera was discovered by a China airline employee in Taiwan who contacted Hawaii News to help find the camera's owner. Uh, the story went viral, and some of her friends found it and forwarded it to her and said, I was just floored that it was my camera, and that it was all my old pictures. It was amazing. I just couldn't believe they had floated so far, so long ago, and the memory card was still intact. China Airlines had offered to fly Cillian out to Taiwan for free to retrieve the camera, but she unfortunately had to decline because she just started a new job. I think they could have made an exception. Come on. Yeah, well, that, the, the new job could have gotten a little bit of publicity out of this. 
Yeah. I'm just curious, though. Most cameras are negative, aren't they? Um, I don't know. A chat room. I was just looking at that last part. You're looking at the guy who found it. Uh-huh. He said that thanks to the desk kit and the camera's waterproof case, its mechanisms and battery were undamaged. Now, that is freaking amazing. Well, yeah. So it had to be negatively buoyant for to make it that far. It had to be positive buoyant. Had to flow. That's what, positive. That's what I meant. Negative, positive. Is there a difference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One floats down, one floats up. <laughs> Yeah, so, but even so, like they said, they must have had that, uh, you know, that little thing that says do not eat, you know, drop a pack of that in the camera, and it was enough to keep it from condensing in there. So that's kind of an interesting tip. My luck is that that would flop around and get in front of the lens. Well, you know, that's good PR for the chip company. If she'd make that notice, she could make a dollar or two out of that. Yeah. You know, like what is Timex? Keeps on ticking. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. So who made the housing? I mean, can you tell? No, that's an interesting. I'm glad they put the picture up. Yes. Yeah, you know, like you said, the guy said he found it. Camera washed ashore, covered in seaweed and barnacles. He has to be a grubber at heart. Well, yeah, because most people would have just not even messed with it. They just left it there. Very cool. Well, I'm glad she got her her camera back. And then hopefully this last article is worthy of something. Alabama Reef Partnership, and what they've been doing is they've been controlling costs and attracting fish. And, uh, gosh, they go on and on and on. Sometimes they just get to the point. Um, so what they're talking about is that we know that uh, structures and shipwrecks hold fish. In the 1950s, they went on a program of the state and local uh, beach surfing association to reef car bodies within sight of land. And they said that was the start of the program. Mississippi considered a uh, similar program, but it fizzled after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, before Katrina Group had built its own reefs and a shoestring budget, spending $5,000, $25,000 in the reef. After Katrina, federal government poured millions into Gulf states to save the fishing industry, which was dealing with a sharp drop in tourism, badly damaged fish habitat, and ton of storm debris in the water. Uh, Alabama spent a million dollars of the more than $43 million it received from the federal government through its uh, post-Katrina emergency disaster program on artificial reefs. They spent $150,000, $200,000 artificial reef construction, about $200,000 a year on reef, uh, artificial reef research. Majority of that money a year in and year out comes from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Sports Fish Restoration Program. Uh, in contrast, Mississippi Department of Marine Resources spent $6.2 million in disaster research money on artificial reef through nonprofit MGFB. The group opened its doors to the Sun-Herald, but the DMR will not discuss post-Katrina relief building because of an Ongoing state investigation. Now, what's that about? Uh, does, it, does that mean somebody embezzled? Sounds like it. Uh, about 95% of the reef snapper harvested in Alabama, landed in Alabama, are caught off of artificial reefs. Uh, in Alabama, privately funded sector partnership holds down the cost of the artificial reef program. The state holds U.S. Army Corps of Engineers permit for 1,250 square miles of water bottom in federal waters off its coast. It builds some reef. In fact, it's about to build two reefs in state waters and sink a couple of fairly large vessels that will appeal to fishermen and scuba divers. It will also allow some private reefs that won't cost the state a cent. We develop protocols that allow private individuals to deploy reefs that met the guidelines, protocols that are agreed upon, and were approved by the Corps. They're fairly restrictive in types of materials someone can use to build a reef, steel, primarily maybe aluminum, concrete, those kinds are typical of what private reef builders do. After the state approves the reef material, it's up to the person or group to get the material to the reef site. 
private reefs are popular. It's been very popular. We have some individuals who submit designs in their own personal use. There are individuals who are in business of deploying reefs on behalf of other individuals. So they'll sell a reef, if, if you will, and deploy it for them. Most are on the small side. They'd be put in a barge or boat and deployed. State won't publicize the location of a reef, but anyone who, who finds it can fish it. They don't provide the exact information. They provide a general GPS location, and we don't publish those. They said there is some cost as far as enforcement that include our general patrols where we're checking for fishing violations, safety violations, patrol to make sure there isn't anybody who's illegally reefing material because without a permit, that's considered ocean dumping. After reef hits the bottom, there are any costs associated with maintenance and upkeep. That's their responsibility if they choose to do so. They're typically steel contraction and those within seven to ten years dissolve away to point there's not much of the reef left. You know, I, I like that program. You know, the fact that they set up some guidelines and say, here's what it is, you put a permit in, and then you get to sink it. Well, enough you, you cost for a permit. It, I mean, I have famous last words. It can't be that much. But you know, what if the permit tells them what they have to use or can't use, so they don't consider it dumping. Well, they did say they had to, that part of the permit process was to prove the material. So it sounds right. like there are some materials that are probably pretty easy to get approved, and then there's others that they would look at and maybe have to do an evaluation on. You know, they said they're typically of steel, and of those within five to seven years, sometime 10, they're dissolved to the point not much of a reef left. Yeah. So it almost sounds like it's more of an obstruction or um, obstacle put on the bottom that deteriorates with time. Because I thought reefs basically are something that will regenerate, correct? That's well, what you only associate with a reef? If it's a coral reef, it would. Yeah. But they're not doing those type. They're just doing objects, and they must not have coral, which is attaching to these. Because a lot of times, even when they, they were doing the cars and trucks and sinking them, and maybe this is off the East Coast more, but uh, coral would start to attach and you, you get a reef started. It kind of acts as seed. Well, 1950, you could get away with putting a car out there, but in the old days, it would not sure. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to do quite a bit of so much cleaning now that you, you, it wouldn't make sense. But I'd like to get a similar program here in Lake Michigan. All we need to do is sink a couple of big wrecks. Well, I I'd think, be happy to sink a couple small wrecks. Well, and that's that's the point. And 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 maybe our esteemed president of the preserve would you know who has all these connections would be able to get you know they need to do like a three step program where you know you can start with a small one, then work your way up to a medium, and then you get to a large. Because we really aren't haven't in the state developed our own resources to be able to do these cleaning and sinking projects. I think Chicago was the last location to do one, and that's been. How many years now? 10, 15? Since they sunk yeah. once? We, we were kind of keeping our eye on the Badger, but the Badger got a two-year reprieve. Oh, did it? Yeah, I was, we haven't talked about that. So they, they, they would they waive the requirement for them to have to do their furnace? Yeah, they're, uh, it's not final yet, but it looks like they're going to uh, they've given them two years to, uh, to find a way to dispose of their ash without dumping it. So they're going to modify the badger and carry more of their ash aboard uh, instead of dumping it at mid-lake. So you, you don't want your ash hanging out the back or anything? No, no. That's kind you don't of make an ash of yourself. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm all for a, a reef. We need something. Well, that plays right into your next time, too. The Lulu. The Lulu. Is that, did I have an article on that? Is that yeah, the... Oak Shores, Alabama. They sank that 271-foot cargo ship dubbed the Lulu. Okay, here we go. They're celebrating the sinking of the Lulu this Memorial Weekend. Not not this next weekend, not meaning it's Memorial Weekend, but the one coming up. 
the 271-foot retired cargo ship dubbed the Lulu will be sunk over the Memorial Day weekend off the coast of the Orange Beach with hopes of making the state a major diving destination. Alabama Gulf Coast and Reef and Restoration Program was launched eight months ago by the Beaches Area Chamber of Commerce, the aim of tapping the lucrative scuba diving market. Hey, you hear that? Scuba diving's lucrative. <laughs> uh, Florida has, in, has enjoyed uh, having divers for years. One study from the Sunshine State estimates the rate of return is at least 130 to 1 for every dollar invested in creating artificial reefs. At the helm of its foundation is Vince Lucidio, a seasoned diver formerly operated a retail dive st- store in Monterey, or Montgomery, Monterey. It's a little different. Uh, being immersed in diving world, uh, he said he always felt that Alabama, despite having a large permitted reef zone in the U.S. of 1,200 square miles, never marked a spot as well as its neighbors, neighboring Pensacola. Oh my goodness, Pensacola! There we go in Panama City. They do a great job of promoting diving in Florida. And what I hope is that we can do here is start promoting the Gulf Coast as a diving destination. So they did this fairly quickly. Within five months of its formation, the foundation's uh, initiative reached 500,000 gold to purchase the coastal freighter. Um, so by putting up 250,000 for the foundation's first reef project, McLear is a title sponsor with naming rights. He chose the Lulu and its logo will be painted prominently on the ship, which is currently moored at Walter Marine's headquarters and intercoastal waterway of the Beach Express toll bridge. The, fish, the other key financial support came from the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. It gave $100,000 in seed money to the foundation. That was followed by the Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, each pledging $50,000. Baldwin County Commission agreed to contribute 200000 to the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act Fund. While it's still not clear whether the sinking will be part of the future episodes of a reality show, Reef Wranglers, the company that filmed it, is still negotiating with Weather Channel. Lucidio said the project is good to go either way and will likely include a lot of fanfare. Once we get out there, we hope to have some celebrations going on, but I'm really letting some of the other programs like Mac work on that. That sounds cool. If they really get a return of 130 to 1, you would be a fool government-wise not to invest in that. I mean, a million dollars, you get 130 back. No, you you figure. I mean, we've we've done the math on the on the show many times. If you can if you can create something that draws traffic that you don't normally have, it it's it does great great things for you. Absolutely. I mean, if we seriously had a wreck in 120 to 100 yeah 120 foot of water of that size, you'd have you'd have charters going off that on that wreck every freaking day during the summer. Yeah, you you would. That bad weather. You, you certainly would. You would have every diver in Chicago who's an active diver, would be over at least once or twice a year to yeah. go and dive on that wreck. Yeah. Half the divers in the chat room would be over once or twice a year to dive on that wreck. And we'd be out there all the time because we'd be hauling their butts out there and back. <laughs> we'd be tired. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, we, I definitely would be out there. It'd be good. It, a wreck in 120 feet. So you had part of it up high, you know, at maybe 60 feet depth, and the rest of it's, you know, not quite technical but deep diver. Uh, you could do mini dives on that a year. Yes. Oh, yeah. And if we put it right out from the pier heads, maybe, it would be a breakwater and reduce the sand entrapment coming into our pier head, and that would be a plus. Wonderfully thought about that. Now, one of the things for the... Oh, don't worry, Max. Somebody would sue us for it. They <laughs> interfered with the uh, normal currents of the lake. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the conditions on the on reefing a 
a shipwreck is that it's not in navigation channels. Is straight out not a navigation channel? Straight out is, but you could go further north or further south, so you're, you know, basically straight out of St. Joe. Yeah. Because um, well, it's, it's kind of like, you know, look at the front of the school. Nobody walks straight out the front steps. You know, as soon as you get out the front door, you're cutting across the lawn. So I'm picturing that. you got that 120 feet down. Ain't nobody's going to be drafting 100 feet. Well, that's oh, that's true, too. But that's at the bottom. I mean, the top of the vessel, if you – because you're going to be probably 50 or 60 feet down, wouldn't you say? Well, it depends yeah. if you really wanted to be, you know, the top at 100 or so. Oh, would you want the top at 100? Well, you'd want it for enough out there that you don't have those real good surge currents doing anything. Yeah, it would have to check with Coast Guard and see what their requirement would be for uh, vertical clearance above it. Yeah. Well, you would think 60 foot would be more than enough. Should be more than enough. I would think so. I don't think we get too many submarines in the Great Lakes that we'd have to worry about hitting it. Or aircraft carriers. Yeah. Not anymore. Well, I mean, when you, actually, when you think about it, we have the barge and crane. That's at 125 feet. And there's, I, wh- who would hit that? I mean, nothing that I can think of. Well, and nobody's going to snag their nets because they're not doing fishing out here anymore. Yep. No, it's, we've got a great opportunity. We just need to get the county and some city people behind it to help fund it because they'd see the revenue. So so what's the first step of that? Is it just getting everybody to say, yeah, we're not opposed to it? I mean, do we get do we run that route and try and wear everybody down? Because anything, it's, it's the naysayers who don't have anything in who just want to bitch, which derail these type of projects. Do you float it out there and say, hey, you know, if you have a problem with it, come now and say something? I think you float the idea that you'd like to uh, create a reef, uh, sink a ship, create a reef, and you talk to groups like the Steelheaders and some of the other fishing organizations around, and you see what their thoughts are on it. You know, the, uh, it, it's certainly going to draw fish. Uh, you're probably going to get a mixed bag from them because they may be concerned that it's going to draw fish away from their secret fishing holes, you know, but it's also would be an opportunity for them to say, yeah, you know, you're not going to have divers on that thing all day, every day, and it's going to draw fish to the area. So, well, you know, if, you got them in transit, coming and going, plus around the wreck. Well, if you if the wreck is big enough and long enough, it seems like you could work out some sort of re- agreement. Even days you reef on the north side of the wreck, on the odd days at the south side, and then they can go and crisscross it to get mm-hmm. their fish. I'm sure if we could get something started and just need to, you know, it's an opportunity to preserve, could do, but to preserve, you know, we don't have $500 in our uh, yeah. our, our kitty right now, so we've got to get some money in the preserve before we can even do buoying this summer. So Yeah, well, I I think you, you have the preserve support it, but I think it almost needs to be separate because a lot of your funding is going to come from the port that would benefit from it. Yeah, I and, would hope. And then the preserve just becomes a mechanism for encouraging it and maybe helping with permitting and, and that sort of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we were to put it, say, down by the cook plant where it's equal distance between New Buffalo uh, mm-hmm. not uh, and St. Joe, then you've got an opportunity where uh, two Berrien County municipalities could support it. Oh, that's a good and idea. it's all Berrien County. Right. Yeah, so you could get... Uh, a few different spots. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll have to, well, plus it seems like you'd be able to, your navigation channel, you should be able to get it out. It, it, when you have it right off uh, the pier, seems like that'd be more of a challenge. Yeah. I love the dream about that. So 
Yeah, no, that would be great to have something out there. But, you know, we've got some targets. we just got to find them and expose them, such as an old bomber. Yes. Oh, that, 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 yeah, we got to find that bomber. Yeah. As Dave says, I see a shipwreck and winery tour coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Shipwrecks first, then winery tour later. Yes, exactly. But yeah, come come on. It, we're, we're getting there. We're yeah, getting there. It's yeah. getting that time of year. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, maybe this approach they have for this next one, underwater fleet of atoll aspires a port orchards diver's dream. Oh, come on. The hamsters in the computer are running as quick as they can. Underwater fleet at Bikini Atoll. Uh, Adrian Smith is trying to do some fundraising to make a film on the U.S. fleet sunk in uh, 1946 by an atom bomb test. Uh, the, the scuba diver wants a videotape the remains, produce a documentary film explaining their role in the dawning of the nuclear age. Uh, Adrian Smith calls Bikini Atoll the Holy Grail Pacific wreck diving, particularly for him, a student of World War II. He says it became apparent to me what horrible condition these wrecks were in. It really started to sink in that somebody had to do something about it. Smith 46 created a project, preserved the history of Bikini Atoll wrecks, and placed it on Kickstarter. To proceed, he needs 27,000 in pledges within a month, which will end April 12th. Uh, and they go into details about the the wrecks um, and the bombs that sank it. So see, right now, you go to the website, he's got 122 backers. He has $11,238 pledge, a $27,000 goal. I mean, I, I like what he's doing, but isn't this just getting us to pay for his vacation? He's smart. <laughs> You know, you send me anywhere in the world. I, I, I twenty-seven thousand. Pick a location. We'll do it for four days. I will go and videotape it. And I'll carry your luggage and the camera for you. Yeah. And help you videotape it. Yeah, I. I, I mean, not that I'm against him. You know, if if people want to give him money, great. You know, all for it. Um, yeah. Good luck to him. I it, remember seeing something uh, on some videos on this many years ago. I do not remember who made them, but they did them on the carrier and stuff. Uh-huh. So it's not like it hasn't been dove because it has been. Right. So if he's talking about a, a comprehensive review and eyeball of the ships, that's probably correct. Well, I mean, you know Jacques Cousteau's done it. He, I think he did a, a segment on it years ago. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Sass in Battle Creek. He's done bikini. So it's not a common spot. In fact, I know there has been some challenge with some of the charters uh, staying in business, uh, but yeah. Always oh, look at that picture and just gotta remember that's only twenty three, you know, kilos kilograms. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm done. Yeah, the what Max referring to is the the mushroom cloud of the blast. That one was the baker they show in the photo. Twenty three kilotons. Can you imagine what a megaton would do? Oh, uh, I mean, even that is, is unfathomable. How much power? Yeah, right in the middle of a fleet, you're toast. Yeah. Because I can remember, weren't they trying to figure out if they could do a tactical nuke for uh, the Navy? Well, they have tact nukes. Well, I know they've got them, but they were trying to show the viability. Well, no, they were viable. We had tact nukes back when I was in the Army. So mm-hmm. it was basically suitcase bombs. Yeah. And they were basically to take out a town or a village. Never had to use them, but they had them. Awesome. Well, that, well, that does it for Scuba in the News. We have a... I don't know if I call this potentially cool scuba gear, but anytime you can use compress air, it's good. My book, uh, was it Peugeot? It's a hybrid car that uh, they say will run on air. They said it can do 80 miles 
no, wait, 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 wait. No, I'm, I'm reading the wrong part. Goodness. They said the car did not solely run on air, of course. The new technology was a twin petrol engine. Boy, what a weird written article. I sent you a new one, though. Actually, two of them. Okay. Well, did well, you see the two-headed shark? The two-headed shark. Yeah. Look at that. Two-headed shark video. No, yeah, no. There you go. That's only because, you know, Matt commented on that because it didn't get far enough out of the spring break video. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you got to get through the video, the commercial at the beginning. I think that shark's going to get told too long. Well, I sent you the und- underwater vehicles, warfare, underwater warfare one again. Oh, okay. I don't think Jim's seen that one. I don't think that has a, uh audio on it. That's worth a look. Okay. Now, I- I'm watching the video of the two-headed shark, which, I mean, that's just a Siamese twin, but a shark. That's what it looked like to me. What's that? That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. Yeah, they said that it was. Around. That's why I it, said I think its parents hung around the bikini a toll too long, soaked up too much radiation. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it could have a little cesium in there, uh, but they why they they said it just surfaced, but it was from 2011. But the expert they talked to was from the Michigan State University. Not that I'm a bit, I'm, I mean that I'm a big MSU fan, but of all the is MSU known? Well, I guess I mean that it is the one of the best veterinary schools. Well, MSU did a lot of the uh, surveys in the lake for both Palisades and Cook Plant uh-huh. uh, in the, like, five and ten years on what's going on with the bottom before, after, and during. Yeah. yeah. So they do have a big program for that. Well, they do, and I, I I don't doubt that they have a good program. It just seems that there has to be, you know, something, a university in or near the water who would be better positioned. But I guess you can have experts everywhere. But uh, good for MSU. And then, yeah, then uh, your uh, video or uh, links for underwater drones. They talk about minesweepers and the Navy, like the new submarine that they're getting ready to launch, talking about that that's going to have drone capability where they can launch and retrieve drones from the submarine. If you only knew what the government was doing. Well, whatever they you know they're doing now is that that is the stuff that's been declassified and it's old. <laughs> yeah. So that just kind of hints at it. So some amazing stuff they have to be doing. Well, I think we killed that, beat the news into submission. And I, I'm, almost, I'm almost afraid to ask. I don't think any of us got a, a dive in again, have we? No. Maybe, maybe we just need to like not do the show anymore until we get a dive in. Would that, would that be? <laughs> why, don't, why don't we just get wet Sunday afternoon? Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Sunday afternoon. We'll just go get wet somewhere. Yeah, um... I don't know. I I may have a hard time selling that one. <laughs> Isn't Sunday something? Isn't there an event going on? Yeah, it's it's Easter. So tell your wife you're doing an <laughs> underwater Easter egg hunt. Yeah, that's it. We'll, I'll I'll provide the eggs. We'll do it at Magician Lake, and we'll have an underwater Easter egg hunt. Oh, you know you could get some press for that though. Sure. I'd let's, I'd be. Let's a... pull it together. <laughs> oh, you're brave. I normally would pick you up on that, except I've already got plans for Sunday. But so, what are you doing on Sunday? It will be the next week. I tell you. What What are you doing on Sunday, Mac? That you can't break and hang and go to the underwater Easter egg hunt. I'm having a surface Easter egg hunt. <laughs> uh, be down in Niles, Edwardsburg area. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty big one, isn't it? 
Okay. Well, I, I do have an update on some cool new scuba gear. Okay, what's that? Well, for those of us who've been tracking the Blue Buddy uh, program from Kickstarter, they've updated that they uh, have now gotten approval from Apple for their iPod app. Excellent. So they're, they're traveling right on schedule to get their – the prototypes were supposed to be out uh, this month, and looks like they're right on schedule for uh, releasing their initial launch uh, this spring for summer diving. Excellent. So I don't know if anyone else in the Great Lakes has signed up or, or not, but uh, I've got one of their tech buddies coming, and I'm looking forward to using it. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how well that's going to work out. That reminds me is that I've, I've got to get my logs up to date. We've been talking about logging, and um, I've got to go through. I need to just do that. Now, I've got my notes and everything. I just got to put it into a format and then bribe my dive buddies who are with me to actually put some ink on it. But I need to get that done. So, Mac, I was thinking uh, a few weeks ago, on dry suits, what was the first dry suit that you dove? Uh, canvas suit with a Mark V. <laughs> <laughs> My own was uh, the old Poseidon uni suit. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I think I dove in a Koala suit before that. And then two versions of Koala. One is where you opened up the belly and you hung through it and you twisted it in the knot. Put a big, big rubber band on it, and then the second version of that had a an actual zipper on it. Now, how did those work? Well, it was okay. I mean, it, be, uh, it was better than a wetsuit, but pain in the butt or pain in the navel, actually. So, so when you say you fold it over, it was almost like a dry bag. You kind of yeah, basically right. And you, it, it all came together at your navel, and you twist it in, fold uh-huh. it over, put a, a band on it, and if you did a good job of folding, it kept you dry. <laughs> Well, that's the idea. Now, relative to price to what we've got now, how how was it? It's hard to say because it, I can't. I was talking to uh, Walt Wolf, who you who actually started uh, Wolf's Dive Shop. Uh-huh. They used to do custom made suits for six bucks. <laughs> for six six bucks. Six bucks. Holy mackerel! Yeah, so the economy I, was a little different. <laughs> but, but even at okay, so six bucks, and so what I'm assuming is that was like sixties. Uh, no, before the 60s. You're talking the 50s and, oh, okay. and the 60s. So, so 50s, 6 bucks would, would could be, gosh, that could be $600 now. Eh, maybe well, not. And, and see, 66, I was making $87 a month in the Army. Yeah. So 6 bucks is a lot of money, even in 66. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, 6 bucks. But the best one I liked was my Viking. I really like that one. Because it's easy to decon, easy to dry, easy to patch. You just got to wear woolly bears or some kind of thermals under it. Yeah, but, I mean, you're going to wear undergarments with even a good dry suit. Uh, with, the, with the Poseidon, you, you really had the neoprene because it was pretty stiff. I wear long johns and that's it. Was that the unisuit? Yeah, unisuit. Poseidon unisuit. That's about what everybody wore around here at that time. Yeah, I got to patch my Viking Dave's talking about he got himself a new Fusion. Ah, oh, Fusion, Dave. There was, I can't remember. They're, they're trying to get a new brand in at uh, Wolf's, actually. I'm trying to think of what that is. Oh, yeah, because uh, they we had the open house. How'd yeah. that go? I had a lot of fun. I went twice. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday and Sunday? I was five hours the first day. Uh, 
I think the last day was nice because we must have had a mini dive meeting there of a lot of the older guys. Excellent. Yeah, I, I saw Carl for a, a few minutes, moments uh, about a week ago, but again, didn't get a chance to talk to him much. Oh, where was he at? Uh, he was up at the lodge. Oh, okay. So uh, I I had to stop in and pay my dues. They were getting ready to string me up probably if I didn't pay it. So I had to get up there. It's my Boy Scout night, so it's a little bit of a conflict. Uh, but he looked, he looked good. I mean, about as good as you can expect, everything right. considered. right. Well, did you find that joke you're talking about? Yeah, I, th- I think I did. Uh, sitting there aging, I can yeah, I can smell it stinking up a little bit. So, so are we ready? Do we? Let's see. We got anything to to go and push? Everybody knows we're on Facebook. Everybody knows we're on Access Cuba. Everybody knows we're on Twitter. Just go to the website and you can find links to everything. Uh, yeah. We're a little bit behind in the show notes. Uh, somebody got married, so I yeah, we'll we'll mark it up to that. <laughs> but yeah. I suppose the big item coming up, if you're going to have something, is uh, the ghost ships is the 15th and 16th of April, and the meet and greet in Gilboa is April 19, 21st. Yeah, yeah. Well, the nice thing about Easter being this time is it's really not interfering with a dive weekend. I mean, we could have gone and done a dive, but I don't feel like we're really missing out. But, yeah, Rich and Dave are in a chat room. When's, when's White Star open up? That's got to be coming up here soon. Uh, they were first. saying earlier it's this weekend. Oh, this yeah. weekend? April 1st. Well, April 1st is Monday. Well, that's basically this weekend. Oh, uh, okay. So they're going to start up a little early, but April 1st is a is the first official day. Okay. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you have any, uh, go ahead and introduce the show to some of your friends. Invite them to, to listen. Send them links. Bug them. Harass them. Get them to listen with you. Get them in the chat room. Uh, we got to come up with some new stuff here, which I've, I've got a whole list of things, but I've been crazy busy at work, which I always say. Yeah, uh, they're opening Saturday, Darren, Darren at uh, White Star. Yep, Saturday at White Star. So if you're in the Ohio area, east side of Michigan or uh, northern Ohio, then you can stop in at White Star. And to uh, I, I think just in, in honor of that that opening, we'll we'll do the bad scuba jump. You guys ready? Yes, sir. Prepared. Okay. Francis Norton woke up Sunday morning and realized it was an exceptionally beautiful and sunny early spring day. He decided that he uh, should either go scuba diving or play golf. After a few seconds of thought, he chose golf and tells his associate pastor that he was feeling sick and convinced him to say mass for him that day. As soon as the associate pastor left the room, Father Norton headed out to the golf course about 40 miles away. This way he knew he wouldn't accidentally meet anyone he knew from his parish. Setting up in the first tee, he was alone. After all, it was Sunday morning and everyone else was in church. At about this time, St. Peter leaned over the Lord and while looking down from the heavens exclaimed, You're not going to let him get away with this, are you? The Lord sighed and said, No, I guess not. Just then, Father Norton hit a ball and it went straight shot towards the pin, dropped just short of it, rolled up and fell into the hole. It was a 420-yard hole-in-one. St. Peter was astonished. He looked at the Lord and said, Why did he let him do that? The Lord smiled and replied, Who's he going to tell? Next time he'll pick scuba diving. Now that's good. That's good. Uh, It's like having cookies and no milk. (laughs) So, on that note, get out there, enjoy spring, and get wet. And stay safe. And don't hurt anybody.
call recording has been completed. Hey, anybody in the chat room want to come on? Dave and Paul are out there. All done. Hey, Mac, now that we're done recording, uh, are you going to be around Saturday? Uh, I will.